0: Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name's Mark Lathwaite, and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. fantastic to be back for another podcast we keep leaving it longer and longer i know we've got busy lives but we've really got to stay on top of this and keep getting this uh these podcasts more regular although saying that i'm sure it's mainly my
1: fault uh mike how are you very Long- well very well raining as always down here so no oh, so matter if we have a, a month or six months apart it'll be raining down here
0: yeah yeah ian what's it like where you are
1: pretty
2: much
0: the same raining in as well oh, it's all right here it's not too bad. But then again, I'm in Wigan. So, you know, it does get nicer the further north you go. If you notice that lots of things, not just the weather. But uh, <laughs> um, so we've got uh, quite a lot of stuff to talk about today. I'm going to m- come on to that more so a bit in a, in, a, in a short while. But um, I do feel it's tradition that we should stick to tweets of the week and, and you know, keep this tradition going. And um, for anybody who just tweets of the week is, it's very, very simple. You've just got to overview your last three or four tweets that you've uh, obviously put on Twitter. Overview what they were, but you have to do it within 60 seconds and hit it right on the nail. Now, of course, it's quite easy to cheat at this because there is a clock which is running in the top of Skype, which, to be fair, because Mike, I can see Mike smirking here. Because it did take me a good year to spot that there was a clock there <laughs> ticking in the top of uh, top of Twitter. But um, you, the idea is, of course, that you cover up that clock and you have to try and nail it within 60 seconds. Now, I mean, Ian's quite trustworthy. Mike, I would probably say less so. But we're going to see how we're going to go with this. So um, who wants to go first on Tweets of the Week?
1: do Don't, Don't mind. Yeah. Doing.
2: Do we need... I can't access my tweets today, um, for because I've been locked out of Twitter, uh, unfortunately. So maybe I should do the timing. So the Barclay Marathon f- finished yesterday and someone had said something about um putting together a training program for uh for to the Barclay. So I'd said, um, just find a wall, bang your head against it for sixty hours mm-hmm. and, and randomly look for pages that someone's hidden for you. And uh, apparently that's incites it's breaking the rules of Twitter in inciting self harm i've been locked out for 12 hours uh, <laughs> so that, that's my excuse for turning miserably at twitch the week this
0: week that is a good it's a good excuse though to be fair I, i've not been blocked to any social media platforms yet i think you're the first person on this podcast to ours so you know i applaud you slightly for that um so it, it's just me and you mike
1: it is but I, I think you know i'll tip my hat that's a special award there i think that twitter jail i have i have found myself in facebook jail over the years not not for a long time Normally for self-promotion rather than self-harm so yeah. um <laughs> that's a new one to me <laughs> so are you doing the timing then ian
2: <clears throat> yeah i'm doing the timing i did think about uh when i get back on twitter saying something about um the parking marathon being a form of self-harm but then i thought i'll probably just get kicked out again so i better not
0: you better you not in, to be honest
2: yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll probably refrain from that I'll, I'll leave that one for the podcast um, okay. But
0: you've yeah, got time. Who wants to go first? Okay, Please. I'm, I'm going to go in Mike because I need to remember. I need to have a look at what tweets I'm doing. Last <laughs> <'cause> <laughs> that's how prepared I am. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to allow you to count Mike in, and yeah. uh, Mike can go first. I'll, I'll count you down. Three,
1: two, one, go. Cool. So I've got three very different tweets this week. First one was uh, whenever he seems to run, I seem to share Kipchoge's splits. The evenness and consistency of his 5Ks is just frightening. Uh, most of us probably couldn't last one 5K block with him, but it's a, such an example about how consistency is key. My next tweet was uh, a video, actually, that I shared the link of from a, a webinar I did this week, which gave a couple of minutes of me explaining how athletes can identify what might be a niggle versus what, what might be an injury, and I'd guide anyone to have a look at that link on Twitter if um, if they wanted to know more. The final tweet had to be saved. The the Barclay Marathons is my favourite time of year for Twitter. Some of this stuff. And Keith Dunn has always been fantastic with his his updates. And a simple tweet yesterday that just said, after seeking help from a trash can that he thought was a person, as well as from some passing motorists, Carol was given a ride back to camp by the Morgan County Sheriff. Does everything and says everything you need to know about the brilliant and wonderful Barclay Marathons. That's me.
2: Yeah, I do remember seeing that tweet when, when I was allowed on there. I did enjoy that. Um, it was yeah, it was going well until the last one. Uh, but I think the the amount of enjoyment that you got from the Barclay Marathons was expressed through your um, description of that tweet. So you went over it a bit at the end. So it yeah. was well, I
1: did think I did think we had ninety seconds now, Mark, because we've stolen thirty seconds of his time this week.
0: Um. Yeah. You'll
1: still go. You'll still go over, but. Yeah.
0: That's the game you're playing. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm but, ready. I'm warmed up and stretched. Yeah, there's an opportunity if you like. So, three, two, one, go. Okay, well, my first tweet is a bit of a serious and a sad one because our border colleague Joss uh, unfortunately I had to have put sleep uh, last Friday because she had kidney failure. And uh, she was a cracking dog. But I just put a tweet out there, just uh, in particular to say, I think when when you have dogs, the bond between children and dogs is something very, very special. And I know the kids are going to miss her. Uh, so moving on with the try kids stuff, the free triathlon stuff that we offer in the primary schools. That project, when we started it, we didn't really know how it was going to work and whether schools would uh, want us to come in. And as of uh, what the last, I think it took us 16 months now. We've now delivered to 20,000 primary school children in the northwest deliver triathlon activities for free and if you want to know more about that then you can look for tri kids on uh, on facebook and last one uh, a tweet to put out because someone who uh, one of the coaching guys was asking me he was going out for a three-hour easy ride and what should his nutrition plan be for a three-hour easy ride and i just put a tweet out to remind people that if they really need to shove gels and bars and take loads and loads of energy drinks For a three-hour easy ride or a 90-minute easy run, then they should probably just slow down and probably not focus as much on the marketing from these kind of products. That's me. Is that good? How do you think you did, Matt? Um, Well, judging by your face, I'm thinking I did pretty crap. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I did well. I thought that was a good 60 seconds.
1: I I, I just want to say before you announce it, the fact you're helping 20,000 kids for free, on the sad story with the dog, I don't even want to win, to be honest.
2: <laughs> well, let's say it was 90 seconds, and then Mark would be nearer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> was it that far off? No, oh. a minute and 11, so you're obviously nearer this 90 A minute and <laughs> 11's not bad for me. That's, that's got to be a personal best. That's got to be a personal best. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, well, so as you've been blocked from Twitter, thereby ends, for this podcast, Tweets of the Week. So, on to the serious stuff then. And in this week's podcast, we are going to talk about uh, polarised training or not polarised training, which is a polarised training is a term, well, if you haven't heard about it, we're going to explain it in a second. But if you, I think a lot of endurance people have heard the term polarised training. And we're going to talk specifically about some uh, research that came out uh, in the last couple of weeks, which was arguing whether polarised was or wasn't the best approach and we think it's just a really interesting discussion for endurance athletes and it's a pretty hot topic at the moment. Now, now Mike you've had a bit of a look into this so I'm going to hand over to you at this point to take the lead.
1: Yeah perfect yeah exactly what you said but right back in um, episode 22 which is literally two days off being a year to the day today when we're recording we actually discussed what does 80-20 training really mean which is obviously the the fabled um ratio that people talk about when they look at polarized training but what we wanted to do was introduce the topic for anyone listening who may not understand one the history of it and two why we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about so originally steven Seiler, very famous uh, endurance based sports scientist who's originally from the us but is based out in norway many years ago now, made some observations on how elite athletes train and that this difference where they tend to have much more focus on low intensity hours with less focus on high intensity, but very little in the middle. So it was just this whole term was coined polarised training. And we generally, although there's other models around it, we generally look at it, particularly in Silas' viewpoint, that there was three training zones, zone one, two and three, or easy, moderate and hard Zone one being up to around lactic threshold, zone two being sort of tempo threshold stuff and then that critical above critical speed effort for zone three. It was easily understood and, and there was an ability to sort of sometimes normalise it by just explaining it in your ability to talk during exercise. Zone one being full sentence, very conversational. Zone two being more short phrase and intermittent talks. And then zone three being very much, you know, spitting out a couple of words here and there between gasps of air. And at that point, I'm probably talking 10, 15 years ago now, things were probably a little bit clearer when it came to polarised training. But as with anything, people miss or change their interpretation of um, definitions and understandings and things that are done. And for most of those endurance athletes, but also, I guess, the professionals involved, it became a little bit blurred. And it's often now that we see that and this was where we talked about it last year people have started to drift away from that original concept of what polarized training was probably one of the seminal points in the last 10 years was when matt fitzgerald wrote his book 80 20 training which was based originally on silas work um, but quantified that split between, by by quantifying it to 80 versus 20 percent of your training which in its own right has caused more confusion because is it 80% of each session, 80% of your overall plan, (laughs) and it's caused confusion and it's now fostered this whole big debate of is it good or bad, should we be doing it? It sometimes then has been deviated away from something similar, which is more that pyramidal approach where rather than it being 80-20, maybe some time is spent in the middle and maybe it's a 70-10-20 type approach. So what's happened is in in very recent times, last couple of weeks and months, two groups of authors heavily involved in this have decided to take um, polarized, pardon the pun, it's intentional, um, polarized evidence and analyzing it and then interpreting what they think and the two pieces of work that are are due to come out in print print soon one's by Mark Burnley an author and other authors Mark is a guest that we've already recorded content with that we're going to hopefully be getting out soon Uh, and that's entitled Polarized Training is Not Optimal for Endurance Athletes and the second piece then is by Carl Foster and others including Sila himself which is arguing that polarized training is optimal for endurance athletes. So there's these two big seminal papers that are out or due to come out in in press soon. We've got access to these papers. We've read them, analyzed them, and effectively today we're going to discuss to save, obviously we welcome um, anyone rooting right through the whole paper to get into the weeds if they enjoy that sort of stuff. But we know that a, a majority of our listenership just want, common sense practical application from this stuff so hopefully we'll be able to argue what's good in the forecast what's good or bad in the in the um against case and maybe find this happy place in the middle of that's probably the takeaways from these two pieces of paper as far as we know today so um over to you guys i would just say
0: um one of the best things I saw on Twitter, I'm, I'm for the life of me trying to remember which, which person it was now, but one of the guys, I think it was one of the authors actually with the, um, one of the papers. And someone, had, when this was posted on Twitter saying, you know, polarized training is not optimal, someone on Twitter replied and said, well, if that's the case, why did Kip Chogi? Um, do polarised training for his sub two project if it's uh, if it doesn't work. And this guy replied and said he didn't do polarized training. He did um, a lot of work in the middle ground. So the other guy replied back and said, oh, because you know him, do you? And you know how he trains. And the guy replied, uh, yeah, I coached him on the sub two project. <laughs> and I really wanted to screenshot that, just save that because I thought that was Twitter gold. <laughs>
1: But it's a good point because there is that assumption of what people are doing, aren't doing. Um, And I guess with some of this stuff, you know, we are seeing athletes now, high profile athletes sharing some of their training plans. But we always have to have that little bit of scepticism that we don't, you know, there's a competitive edge and a a psychological battle that goes on in, in that elite field that we don't often encounter in our world sometimes. And we don't know what people are sharing as true or false based on what their bigger picture thinking is around things. So um yeah. we do have to be careful. I think is it I can't remember who it is. Who's the guy that um Alan Cousins is sharing a lot of this stuff? Someone has just published all his training data. One of the skiers. But um but that seems to be pretty open and honest, that one.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean what's I think what's interesting as well is at the moment the the, um, the success of the norwegian triathletes you know so gustav eden you know and and um uh oh god what's his name olympic champion my, my, uh,
1: uh, my Blumenthal.
0: blumenfeld and and, and eden people and actually what well, they're, they're they're doing a lot of training which is kind of threshold type training it's definitely not polarized and that's really well published so they're doing a lot of that and similar stuff with um inge brixton's yeah. so uh so that's quite fascinating because there seems to be a lot of stuff specifically about the Norwegian athletes at the moment as well. And that definitely isn't polarized. Um, but um, but what I find interesting is for what I would say with the, the polarized stuff, I think it's probably worth going right back to the start and defining it again, isn't it? What what people define as polarized training. Like you say, polarized training is either very, very easy or it's very, very maximal. And I found great success with that. um, especially over winter periods. And and from the first thing that I thought when I saw the papers, because what they were questioning is, is polarized training, so everything's easy, or there's a very small amount of maximal stuff, is that better? Or is it better doing more threshold type work in the middle? Now, <clears throat> being realistic about this, if you look at someone's annual training program, I remember when I did my first coaching course, they were talking about going from general to specific in these kind of phases. On a natural 12 month rolling training programme, it is quite likely that people are going to be doing both approaches. They will do polarised through the winter. And then as they come into the season, you would do more work closer to your race pace. So it would be if you're a marathon runner, for example, as you approach your marathon, it's pretty common that you're going to go out and do whatever you want to call it, your tempo runs and run close to marathon pace. If you're training for Ironman, you go out and do your Ironman bike rides. You'd have a specific block closer to Ironman pace. So I, I, I would argue this whilst there's an argument of which is better, the polarised approach or using this approach where there's more in the middle ground, more thresholds, whatever you want to call it. Uh, my view of this is that there, that there isn't an either or and they, they both sit somewhere in a 12 month training plan.
1: Yeah. You've just stolen everyone's thunder on the overall conclusions.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, is that was that your? Oh, oh, I've just ruined it.
1: Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> oh, yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah, <laughs> as far as um, as far as your interpretation of the two, what um, f- should we just split them into for and against? Sort of the things that are for polarized training, which yeah. is obviously what the paper that argues it is optimal suggests. Yeah. Then maybe just go into the the polarized isn't uh, optimal, the against arguments, and then see what the com- conclusions are.
0: Yeah. Okay. so
2: yeah, I think well, that also, also to draw up some of the sort of key conclusions for people. I think in terms of you know guiding and informing your own training, I think is some of the important. I think there's some important messages come through in both papers, so they don't always disagree with one another. That's the thing. I think they're not necessarily opposing each other on everything they say, are they? which it, it, when you read the uh, the title of the papers, you expect them to be. Uh, in opposition to one another, but there is quite a lot of common ground, I think. Uh, yeah, and that yeah. that's probably where the, the, the most useful guidance is for, for athletes, because it's where there's definite agreement on, um, you know, what can be helpful in your training. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, what
1: did we what did we see that were, were four arguments? What did we see that um, potentially would steer someone that a polarised approach may be better?
0: I mean, I'm just coming away from the paper and just thinking of my own experiences and focusing on the paper and what it said in the paper for a second. I mean, the reason why I use a polarised approach, certainly in winter, is I find with amateur athletes that they're probably not doing enough volume that they should. And they're probably not doing it easy enough. So by polarising, saying, look, everything that's easy needs to be below aerobic threshold. It's got to be easy. And this is the way that will enable you to build up more volume because people are trying to build up volume and they're failing to build volume because they're doing it too hard. So that's why they say, oh, I can't I can't do high volume training. I can't do 20 hours a week or whatever it may be because I'm breaking down. It's because they're doing it too hard. So polarise is a really good way to get people to do a high amount of volume at the lower intensity. And then obviously you've got that small amount of intensity mixed in the really high intensity stuff in a very, very small percentage. But I would say, from 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 my experience of using the polarised stuff, I think it very much depends on the individual. Itself. So, if you've got, I'll give you two examples of this. Um, let's say you've got someone who um, who's coming from a football or a rugby background, and they and they're going to want to tra- train for an Ironman next year, or they want to run a marathon next year. If you look at the polarised approach, which is For example, how much power can you push for a very, very short period of time? And compare that to doing six, seven hours at zone one, for example, on a bike. You'll probably find that the guys who've come from team sports, for example, probably can already tick the box and crank out a huge amount of power or a good speed for 10 or 20 seconds. They've probably got that nailed. So we'll get guys who come and, you know, test in our lab who have come from a rugby background and they're very top-end stuff. So what can they sprint for 10 or 20 seconds is through the roof, you know, much higher than we get in most of the decent endurance athletes. And where they struggle is that they just can't ride for five hours without falling to pieces because they have no endurance. So that polarized approach works well, but I also don't think it's necessary for those people who already tick the box of having the very high power or high speed. So for those guys, they're probably just better. Just doing aerobic volume, they probably don't need a polarised approach. If you've got someone who has trained for an Ironman for the last ten years, we get people coming who've done an Ironman over multiple, multiple years, or they run ultras. They tend to be a bit ploddy, I would say. So they'll shuffle along for hours and hours and hours, but they have absolutely no top end. So for those people, the polarised approach works because they do the base and they tick the other box of the extreme top end. So I do think a polarised approach is really, really good to follow in winter, but it might not be necessary for a lot of people.
1: And, and one, one of the findings for it in, in the paper, the pro paper fits exactly what your narrative was there, is that the polarised training is is a brilliant way for accumulating volume, but managing the amount of stress that you're placing on the system at the same time, which which we've all seen... People, you know, my clinic is littered with people who literally can't control that that problem. So we're we're able to accumulate and rack up big volumes without really continuing to push this, you know, that, that stress. And and Siler himself has always called it trying to avoid the moderate intensity black hole, mm-hmm. that zone to abuser, so to speak. But um, and, and that's what I always see, particularly in the in the recreational guys they try to fit a training plan into the available time they've got it's 45 to 60 minutes a day it's let's make the most of this Then get a bit of sweat on start breathing quite hard and and often that's where you can switch them back to those things where you can really start to get people to understand no look it's not about it's not a case sometimes of finding more time to train you could still have the five six ten hours a week you've got but maybe we can differentiate and divide that time a bit more smartly to polarize your training and, and from a injury risk or an injury occurrence point of view often I see that as a huge change in someone's progress just by being a little bit more polarized and end-to-end rather than this bit in the middle the tough bit I always think with it is the sell of it if someone's used to doing it that way there's a fear that well I've performed at x doing it my way if you give me a different way is my performance going to drop rather than go up and it's a big change sometimes it's a tough tough change to make with some to do a bit less some days and work less hard others and the ones they do work hard is actually a bit of a shock to the system as well because it's harder than they think was hard um but um but it's a very nice way to to control someone's training but i'm in complete agreement with you mark that um the problem most people is is they pick it up and think that's the twelve month plan and and actually as you said it's it's very good and very um suitable at certain points of the year uh, weather update down here we've gone from rain to storm, so uh, bouncing down outside the window
2: at least we haven't got that no i think that i mean there there is some general agreement across the two papers and it's definitely in terms of the benefits of a a large volume of low-intensity work. It, it's the composition of that remaining twenty percent, or the, uh, the the you know, the high-intensity bit. That where there's probably the difference in opinion, but also some disagreements in terms of how they define that component as well, which is is what's led to that sort of introduction of that pyramidal um, term. Yeah, you know, because obviously the polarized gives this view of you know, a very large spike in the low intensity, a reasonable size spike, you know, the 20 in the high intensity and then nothing in the middle, which is probably, that's probably certainly the the weakness of the um, the, the polarized approach in terms of how it's been defined in the past because it, it gives this impression to people, doesn't it? The strength of it is it's really emphasized and encouraged people to, do much more of the low intensity stuff and the, and the high volume work that's needed. Um, it, it, what, what might be problematic to, and also the other thing that's important um, to sort of build on what Mark said earlier is considering what the event is that you're targeting. So Mark said about becoming more specific as you're working towards the event. You know, is that event a, you know, a 5 or a 10k or is that event an ultramarathon? The, the, the composition and the way that that's Set up is probably uh, you know, and where you where you focus your attention as you get towards the event for the high intensity stuff is probably going to differ markedly across those different events, and it might mean um, that a polarized approach where you have got you know most of the higher intensity stuff being at the high end, um, if, if you for the shorter endurance event that may be appropriate, whereas if you're targeting a marathon or um, uh, an ultramarathon, you you probably be much more in that middle ground uh, as you approach the event, uh, and more in the threshold work. But it is interesting when uh, when you see the assessments across the two papers in terms of the basis for this, because a lot of it is from the sort of observational research, you know, as we mentioned, where, where we've got data, we've got studies that have looked at actual training programs and where the um, where the volume of intensity across different uh, the three primary zones that I, that, uh, that might um, defined earlier. Um, obviously, there's some problems around measurement of those and how that's assessed and how that's done in the observational literature. Um, because it, you know, do you do that based on you know what are your criteria for when people are in certain zones? And if you do it based on say heart rate, then it's impossible to get to. Yeah, you know, zone three without going through zone two so you're going to do a, a significant amount of that work in there anyway uh, it's really about i think but if we're thinking about how we inform and guide and plan our training it's about what the focus of the training is isn't it for that day rather than you know where our heart rate ends up being because that's going to be influenced by other factors such as the weather and our uh you know, what training we've done in the days lead, no power current training status and so on is all to having that um, but I think where the two agree is definitely that you need to the large volume of the low intensity work, and then that is helpful in terms of recovering from the um, the higher intensity work. Um, something else that I, that wasn't sort of so explicitly covered for me in in the papers, but I think is an interesting point of discussion is when you're doing that, uh, you know, that large volume of low intensity work. You can still be working reasonably hard to sort of push up towards lactate threshold. You know when you so you've got quite a broad span between sort of the very lowest intensity and then just before you get into that second zone. I, I didn't see a lot of evidence, and I certainly didn't see a lot of arguments for the benefit of potentially pushing towards that line. And I can see definite benefits in terms of you know, lack of stress on the system. Um, and recovery from harder efforts in staying towards the lower end of that. So, uh, yeah, interesting to hear what, what you two guys think on that. But, I, you know, one of the things that I think from the evidence that I saw um, suggests it might be better to do if you're doing that 80% of the work, you know, that the uh, low intensity stuff, then really sort of bringing the intensity down further, then, you know, not seeing this as an excuse to sort of. Push close to the uh, lactate threshold because there's probably no benefit in doing that. Mm. Would, yeah. that would
1: that be your reasoning as well? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it is. It is. I think it might be silent himself. It was, you know, your easy work can't be easy enough, and your hard work should should be harder than you think it should. So um, so so that's that's the key. And there's a lot always bandied about about the um, African distance runners about the pace that they actually do their slow runs at. You know, it's it's 10, 11 minute plus sort of pacing, and we all know how fast they normally are. So, so sometimes it's a shock for a lot of athletes to think, well, do you do you understand how slow I have to be running to be there? And mm. that that's not a productive run. So there's a there's almost a mindset thing with this for people to understand that um, that it is it is about controlling speed more than sometimes understanding if the speeds are or the percentages of those speeds are right. I think it's probably a, a fair point to, if there's listeners sitting there thinking, well, what's the case against? If they haven't read this paper, these papers and they're thinking there's some some shock and all sort of counter-argument, it's probably uh, a fair time for us to say that, in essence, the main argument from the against isn't that there's anything wrong with polarised training. It's more that it's probably not actually polarised training in its true sense, that it is much more the interventional studies and the things that we've used to say that polarized training is optimal are in essence by default, as we've already touched on, more pyramidal in their approach than than actually true polarized. So so it's not it's not so much that there's anything else we're probably from these two papers gonna pull out some new training system and go, no, ignore polarized. This is what you want to do. It's just more, as you've said, we 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 can't really avoid the middle zone. We can avoid being in it for for long periods of time intentionally, but, um, but it is more how you understand, interpret, and apply a, a, a polarized slash pyramidal approach, which is what Mark kicked the whole thing off at the start with, was saying that, you know, it's about which time in the year you manipulate those numbers that add up to 100% and what you're going to do with them. But then, as we've started to say, it's about, Understanding how fast or slow those or hard or easy those sessions should be. I, I mean, I
0: still don't think people get that. With that, I see so you you kind of referred to it earlier about the problem with saying polarized approach and then 80 20, because 80 20 obviously implies that 20% of your training should be hard. And I think if you're following a true polarized approach, it isn't going to be anywhere near 20%. You know, to do 20% of your training hard, that's probably not going to be polarized.
1: Yeah. And, and, and i, I meant to, i meant to make a note on this but I, and i've forgotten it but the actual 80 20 number isn't really a physiological premise we pulled 8020 is a principle that comes from finances and economics and other areas that has something about 80 percent of time and effort should be on this and 20 on that and it's sort of migrated across that we've just called it 80 20 principle
0: yeah yeah but i mean i, I, I think it's it's worth just kind of clarifying when we're talking to people about that if you're saying x amount should be easy and x amount should be hard or in polarized training you should be doing it easy or maximal just what we mean by that so if you say to people it should be either really easy or it should be really hard then someone can easily perceive really hard to be well i'll just go and run flat out for 20 minutes because that's really hard but that wouldn't fit into a polarized training plan so, polarized training is very close to maximal, or it's very, very easy, isn't it? And as Ian just kind of said, you know, below this first lactate threshold, I think it's probably worth talking about thresholds as well, because we use those terms quite a lot. I'm not sure people fully understand them, but it's either very easy training, so that kind of zone one stuff below the lactate threshold. And interesting, we to say on pointing they said the people, the coach, how many people have said to me, so, if my upper zone one is my lactate threshold one or aerobic threshold, or whatever term we're using, you've got to stay below that aerobic threshold or lactate threshold. Um, if I push right up to it, how far can I push to it? And psychologically, it's always so can I push right up to it? Can I get if I'm one beat below? Is that okay? It's like, you know, it's meant to be easy. And you're already asking, how far can I push it? How close to lactate threshold can I get? Just chill out. You know, slow down. You'll be able to do more volume. You'll be recovering better. But they just don't see the benefit unless they're hurting. So people are questioning that all the time. So easy stuff should be easy. It should be, you know, in that zone one, below that aerobic threshold, below that LT one whatever you want to call it. But the hard stuff should be absolutely maximal. If I'm doing a – we've got our guys doing polarised swim sets at the moment, and the swim sets can be up to 4,000 metres. And within the – I mean – Maximum of 500, sometimes only 250 meters of of hard work. So it might be 10 times 25 meters. 25 meters, absolutely maximal personal best for 25 meters, followed by seven lengths, really easy swim, just to recover from it. Repeat that 10 times. That's 2,000 meters, but it's only 250 meters of maximal work, and then with warm-ups and everything else. So it's a very small amount of, you know, 250 meters of maximal work in a for what is otherwise a 4,000 meter aerobic session, you know, all, all at relatively uh, lower intensities. So I think when we talk about 80 20 and we talk about it's got to be easy or it's got to be hard, what are we defining as hard? You know, is it running one mile repeats? Is it going running a 5K really hard? Is it doing a 20 minute bite test really hard? And polarized is, a, is supposed to be either maximal, i.e., very, very short duration and maximal, or it should be very easy below that aerobic threshold.
2: Yeah, and then it's got to be pretty short, pretty short reps for it to classify as sort of um, above critical power. Because that's what we're talking about in Zone Three, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, it needs it's 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 your repetition work when you're doing short reps with, with uh, and intervals with recoveries in between. Um, a- anything that involves sort of an extended period, although you know it might feel hard when you're doing it. Physiologically, you're in that middle zone. You're in the threshold zone. If you're doing a, twi- you know, if it's 5k or a 20 minute
0: effort or anything beyond that, then you, you're almost certainly in that middle ground. Yeah. So um, polarized is referring to intensities, isn't it? Your intensities are polarized. But when we start talking about 80-20 and 20% hard, how polarized is it if you say so, you're saying I'm running a a I run a 5k hard, and that could be my, my 20% hard. But 5k is not that hard compared to running eyeballs out for 30 seconds or a minute oh, that, that, that's
2: definitely middle ground sort of between lactate threshold and critical power work isn't it yeah. but you know, if you one of the most interesting parts for the sort of you know uh product training is not optimal paper was that they presented in figure one we've mentioned earlier about the observational research and looking at how people's um uh, Training maps onto that. And, you know, we're talking there about 80-20, and what volume actually was in Zone One. And in Figure One, they actually plot out um, those percentages from um, eight studies that they've um, selected. It's quite interesting. So for for the Zone One work, it's probably the probably the lowest for any of these studies is around about 70%, and the highest is 90%. And the others obviously fall somewhere in between. So I would, that The average somewhere in there is around about 80% across those eight studies. But then when you look at zone two and zone three, it's actually zone two that is the next highest and zone three is the smallest amount of work. Uh, and obviously these are observational studies with uh, elite athletes, with the assumption being that, you know, if we understand how elite athletes are training, then that can tell us what might be most optimal. But they do they do acknowledge in the paper, and I think this is in the... Polarized training is optimal. Paper they they acknowledge that this is for endurance athletes who are uh, you know um, who have been training for got a good training history. If you are quite new to the sport, then maybe um, a, a, a different approach might be more beneficial. It might not need to be so so polarized. But actually, when you look at this figure, it's more pyramidal than it is polarized. Um, in that we're, we're seeing the. Certainly around about 80% in Zone 1, and then around about so between 10 and 20%. There's a couple that are below 10% uh, in Zone 2, but nothing above 10% in Zone 3 for any of the studies. Mm-hmm. So probably the highest, probably around about 8% um, uh, of Zone 3 work in any of those studies. So they're all you know, su- supporting more of this pyramidal. But interestingly, in the... Um, in the polarized training is optimal they do talk about uh, pyramidal and be pyramidal being beneficial especially for longer endurance athletes
0: mm-hmm.
2: um so i think there's been a slight shifting in the definition at some point in that you know the team polarized as being a contrast between zone one and then higher intensity work um mm-hmm. but it does make it does make the differentiation between sort of pyramidal and uh, uh and polarized um but the, the where the common ground is in the agreement across the two is that certainly for a lot of athletes, this pyramidal approach is maybe uh, more optimal. But it's interesting that when um, that analysis was done of the observational data, what you actually see is pyramidal as than tolerance. Mm. Uh,
0: you know, when you're talking about pyramidal. Yeah. You're talking about people basically doing high amount of low intensity volume, small yeah. amount of max, like very hard maximal work but also doing some threshold-type work, as you might call it, in the middle as well, aren't you? So yeah, i mix those three. Yeah, probably twice as much in the middle
2: ground, sort of threshold work, um, yeah. high intensity. But then, you know, around about 80% in, in zone one. Mm. Um, it is how it sort
0: of cuts up. Because I guess most people who are camping in race season, or, you know, it could be, in, if they're runners, it they might be in cross-country season in the summer, or track season in the sorry cross country season in the winter or track in the summer then I guess you know that that's what you most commonly find at a local running club isn't it that to have that easy mileage but they're probably doing a threshold type session and then maybe a faster type session throughout the week you know that's probably something that a lot of people are familiar with that approach isn't it yeah
1: yeah
2: it's, it's really what people doing that uh they're training outside of the the club work that way of Probably more of the training mistakes are made because they're doing they're working too hard in those other sessions that are not allowing them to recover. And um, because even the uh, threshold work and the work in the middle ground, you still need to be recovered for it and rested for it because you you're not going to be able to you, either. That's going to be very taxing for you if you're doing it when you're already very fatigued, or you're not going to be able to do enough volume of it because you still might want to do you might want to do yeah. Two threshold reps or three qu- quite extensive threshold reps in a session you might not be able to do that if you're not recovered um so it's really the, the intensity at which you're doing the rest of your training that's probably the key part and then focusing where you put that so the, the balance between zone two and zone three depending on what you're training for and where you are in the training cycle
1: yeah i i wonder whether part of the takeaway we want The listeners to have is more i think people get polarized and i think people think it's something they should probably do but part of the reason or one of the things that's come out from the 20 odd years of polarized training for all its benefits is we've sort of demonized this threshold and we've started now to break down that myth a little bit that it isn't all bad it's bad if it's perhaps all you do but actually you could feel a bit more comfortable and safe spending a little bit of time there. As, lo- as long as you're not, you know, redlining it and and, and falling perhaps back into more of a, a polarized approach but a smaller margin, like a sixty forty plan. Yeah. Um and that's partly now because we've started to see some pretty high profile athletes starting to take these threshold type approaches. We mentioned Inge Britson and uh, blumenfeld and a couple there's a couple of sort of really high profile scandinavian skaters who are doing it so i guess perhaps if nothing else it's the the point that threshold threshold all the time is a problem threshold and nothing else is a problem but maybe people should be comfier with doing a little bit of threshold work at the right time and as you say, mark for that event specific things so so you could have a 20-week plan that is 10 weeks of polarized approach at the start but we then become pyramidal and even become slightly different at the end
0: yeah yeah
1: i'd say what else is
0: important as well we were talking about so but I mean, this would be a classic that's structure i i'd follow with the guys we coach i do a polarized approach in winter so i have a very high intensity to develop the speed and the power and then slow them right down to do, to do the volume and the base work i don't do that with people who already have the speed and the power so, if someone turns up and they're already, like I said, rugby player turns up, trying to improve his cycling, can knock out a huge power for one minute, probably not, don't need to spend too much time focusing on that. They've got that in bucket loads. So, for those guys, just focus on the aerobic based stuff. So, you've got to get that balance right. Because I think that balance is important. I, I, I would see that polarized, the balance between the two polarized intensities as the two key ingredients required. To get the true benefits of the threshold training. So I'll give you an example of this. Let's say someone wants to run a fast 5k. If they don't have the base mileage and the aerobic uh, um, conditioning to underpin it, they will lack that aerobic conditioning that they need. But also if they're just slow runner, then they won't have that basic speed. So you see people trying to run fast 5k's and they're just not quick enough. They can't run Fast over 200, 400, 800, whatever. They're just not fast enough, full stop. They're not quick runners. So they can do all the aerobic base they like. They'll be able to run more miles, but they're never going to be quick enough to run a fast 5K. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you get people who are really fast runners. So team sports players are really fast, over 100, 200, 500, 400, 500 metres, whatever, but might not have the aerobic base. So they're the kind of opposite. So I think you've got to have that balance between, you've got that basic speed. What is it, anaerobic uh speed reserve as the sports scientists call it don't they you need to have that basic speed can you run fast and then you have the aerobic endurance to underpin it and if you've got the two in- ingredients then you can start doing the threshold work and you will get the benefits if you're just a slow runner so you've got the aerobic base and you don't have the speed you're going to go and do your threshold work but your threshold work will be slow because you cannot run fast so I-, I think those are like that polarize gives you the two key ingredients to get the benefits of the threshold work but the other, uh, so once you've got those two key ingredients, your first block of training, then you move on to more threshold type work to get ready for racing because it's going to prepare you for the stuff you're going to be doing in your event. Um, as you've rightly said, and you just mentioned then about the Norwegians uh, uh, and how they're, um, they're doing more threshold type training. But I, again, I think what's important to emphasise with that is when we talk about threshold, w- what are they referring to? Because there are so many thresholds in sports science that really confuses people. Which threshold are we talking about? And I think what's interesting with the Norwegians is they're using lactate threshold. So when they do their threshold work, their sustained work, it, they keep below lactate threshold two. And what I think a lot of people don't understand about lactate threshold two is it's a lot lower than they anticipate. If they come for a sports science test and you do a lactate threshold test to identify lactate threshold one, that first break point, and then the second one, the lactate threshold two is generally a lot lower than they realise. It's below their 5k pace. And people think their threshold is what I can hold for 5k, and it's not. That's way above lactate threshold. So the, the, the relevance of this, because I'm waffling now, but the relevance of this is I think what the Danes are doing is what well, sorry, Norwegians, I should say, what the Norwegians are doing when they're doing their threshold work below lactate threshold two, the key thing is it's still aerobic. And I think if you said to someone, go and do a threshold session, they would probably go and run five minutes as hard as they could, take a two minute break, five minutes as hard as they could. And that will be over lactate threshold. Whereas what's really key about the Norwegians are doing is they're using lactate threshold two and staying below that. So it is still aerobic work.
2: And and uh, absolutely, and recognizing why they do that is important. I think as well, it's because it's they they're trying to maximize the amount of training effects and adaptation they can get, but without tiring themselves too much and needing too much recovery. Uh, And that's that's the danger of doing too much in the yeah in the zone three. Is that obviously needs an extended period, and that's part of the argument against polarized training. Um, in the against paper is that doing too much in zone 3 uh, a lot of the time and for, for people who don't need that depending on what they're training for can be very taxing in terms of recovery mm-hmm. requirement of recovery so um, uh, whereas you can get a lot of the benefits in, of in terms of adaptation from doing zone 2 work uh, mm-hmm. that work in the middle ground so really it's, it's between that sort of first black turn point and your critical power is what the um, defined as that middle ground and it's when you step over that, that you're going to start needing um, extended um, recovery time um, to, to, to get over that before you can then do another high intensity session whereas if you do limit it like the in that middle ground you can probably do more of that uh, I, I would have guess that they probably do more than 20% of the time because of the folks in a lot of their uh, efforts in that in that ground so that's the benefit. And the downside of going to the really high stuff is that you're going to limit what you can do in the future. So it's not just what you're doing on that day; it's when you can then train again isn't it? Um, in those higher um, high intensities. So yeah, a lot of that love work is about developing sort of mitochondria and the slow switch muscle fibers to give you the endurance, isn't it? For for then when you're racing, you can then utilize and get the most from all of those muscle fibers before you have to recruit those sort of less efficient muscle fibers uh, as the uh, as the event goes on. But um, yeah, one of the things that um, got me thinking now, and I think it's something Mike was saying, was I know this is largely a sort of physiological discussion and, and topic, but I think there is some psychology in this as well, particularly when we start talking about um, event specifics, and it got me thinking about. Uh, and Mike also mentioned sort of the demonizing of um, sort of threshold work. And I've always been an advocate in marathon training of having marathon-based parts of your long runs, especially as you get towards the event. Um, and whenever, if anyone ever has a bad marathon, the the, the one thing you can guarantee that 90% of people will say, I need more long runs, or, I need my long runs to be longer. And whereas I think what you actually need is. You need more focus on being able to run at marathon pace in your long runs, rather than so. And that is threshold work in that middle ground, Um, but I think there is a huge, and that part of that is physiological, but part of it's psychological as well, because one of the most common things I see with marathon runners, especially in the lead up to the event, is I've done all these long runs, but they've all been at an easy pace. Yeah, I don't feel, I haven't got any confidence. How am I going to run for 26 miles at a faster pace? The longest long run I've done is 22 miles, and it's been at an easy pace. So how am I going to now do 20? And then you have to, there's always a leap of faith with the marathon that you you have to, you're not going to be able to do in training anything close to what you're going to do in the race. So there is a leap of faith there. But we can certainly narrow that gap by incorporating some marathon pace work and sections of marathon pace training um, within a longer run, and to, especially towards the end of a long run. So I did a 22-mile run last Sunday and I did 4x5k at marathon pace in there. And my last 5k at marathon pace was probably a bit faster than marathon pace. Just, uh, I, depends how fast I run the marathon, I guess. But certainly I'd be very happy if the marathon ended up being at that pace. And I felt strong and it was, it was only like a mile left of my long run. That it's those blocks that I find you get the most confidence from because you're running at that pace, very close to the end of a, a run that's you know over two and a half hours long and, and approaching what your actual marathon uh, event will be. So you know that middle ground is very important from a psychological perspective as well. I think because the majority of the events that uh, our listeners are going to be running, that's probably where the race pace is going to be in that middle ground and not. The yeah. so
1: falls out uh, zone three stuff. So. Yeah, which, which you know the de- the definition again, which we were chatting about there. You speak to a lot of recreational athletes, you know, their understanding of speed work is to go and find a football field and sprint as fast as they can. Like, no, that's not speed work. It's just above race pace speed, you know. And and on the psychological thing, although you don't see a lot of of, of athletes employing this in a widespread way. The most psychologically confident and prepared athletes I've ever come across are normally the ones who do something like Canova training. The Renato Canova tells, you know, spending time at their race speed in training and building volume at that speed. It's, t- it's a tough way to train and it probably would be part of other things as well in my mind. But well, as you say, they just seem confident that they can run at that speed. Frightening how many athletes turn up on the start line expecting to run a speed that they've not run in training. And are then shocked why, well, I don't know why I couldn't break three hours. Well, it's because you were trained at four-hour pace exclusively. Um, you know, you can't cash checks that your body hasn't hasn't put the credit in the bank for yeah. in training. Did you tell
0: that? Sorry, if you've done that. I'm just going to say, I guess, talked about it so far as using that polarized approach, if you like, in the first block in winter. So, that having that top end, that power, that speed, and then having that aerobic base, but then moving into that kind of specific phase, isn't it? Where you then have the confidence of, right, I'm now going to start running or riding or swimming at my race pace to have the confidence. But And it's not just the confidence thing, it's also the learning thing, because there's a lot of people are just, bottom line, is the clueless at pacing. You know, so people will start in a triathlon and they'll set off in the 1500 metre swim or the 750 metre swim like they're going for a 50 metre PV. You know, they're just absolutely clueless at pacing how hard they should set off in a 5K or, or, or in an Ironman going off too hard on the bike or whatever it may be. So that specific block, it will give them the confidence, but it's also the learning. You know, th- you know this is the correct pace to swim at. Look at the clock on the wall if you want to swim eight minutes for 400 meters, that's two minutes per hundred. Learn how to do it. How does it feel? How does it feel to ride at the correct power output or heart rate on your bike for an Ironman? How does it feel to run at the correct pace for for four-hour marathon pace? You know, you shouldn't be running at three and a half hour marathon pace. So I think that, you know, it's the learning thing as well, isn't it? And, And, you know, not just the confidence side of knowing you can do it, it's learning how to do it for a lot of people and getting them to, I have more problems with throttling people back than anything else you know because they'll go they'll go too quick you're trying to get them to slow down and learn what race pace is
1: and i it's it's perhaps one of my anecdotal criticisms of a polarized approach as much as i i've utilized it myself over the years is what i think is the quest to simplify training for people sometimes you oversimplify it if all you're thinking about is be really easy and be able to hold a full conversation or be so hard that I can't spit out more than a couple of words, you forget all those other parameters, as you say, that you could be training. And you may not be in a race specific block, but you can be training elements that are vitally important in a race. Yeah.
0: I'll tell you what, just something else from Ian said from a psychological perspective, I'm kind of going off at tangents here, but what I find as well is training through the winter. If I do a lot of that middle ground, that so the, the approach I would take is that polarised in winter, depending on the person, whether they need to tick both boxes, polarised in winter, come into the spring, summer, races and more threshold type sessions get you prepared for racing, more specific training towards your, your discipline. So you go from that kind of general polarised to more specific, ride at your Ironman pace, run at 10k pace, whatever it may be. I, I also, the reason I like the polarised approach is because I just find it easy. As in mentally, it doesn't drain me. And what I've found from people who will do a lot of that middle ground, so doing a lot of what they're calling threshold work. And again, is threshold. I think when people cycle, for example, going back to this point and, and, and kind of going on the same ground again. But I think people think threshold on the bike is, for example, what they could push for 20 minutes on a bike, that 20 minute power test. So in their heads, that's threshold. Lactate threshold is probably a lot easier than that for them. Lactate threshold is probably what they can hold for an hour, 90 minutes. So I think it's defining what are we calling threshold when we're talking about doing threshold work. And that's what I said. The Norwegians will do it. Threshold work that the Norwegians are doing is probably a lot easier than people think threshold work is. But the people who just sit on the turbo or just uh, they're just running and just drilling it all the time, hard, 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 mentally just destroyed by February. And that's one of the big reasons I like the polarised approach It's not just the physiological. The hard stuff is very, very short and it's over and done really quick. And the rest of it is easy. And I very, very rarely burn out doing a polarised approach. I think doing the hard threshold stuff, there's an only a certain amount you can do where you get physiological benefit from, but also it's mentally draining. And I think it's good to save it. It's spring, sun starts coming out, specific block before a race and then the race. I, I think, you know, I find that it's, um yeah, polarised is good because I think it's mentally less draining.
1: I do and I sometimes with athletes have almost too many seasons you know may- maybe they go through the winter in a very similar approach to you for something around springtime and after that period of time and that race has gone we slip back into a, a, a periodized approach for May June July and then we repeat that process into August September time and suddenly you've had two little seasons which effectively is a saying like the papers sort of summarize and many people who've analyzed both of Alex Etcherson, I think, came to a similar conclusion. Is realistically, instead of arguing, does periodized really work? Or, it, or what? It's let's focus more on the micro and the meso and the macro cycles of someone's program and apply them then rather than someone saying, you know, I, I've been approached lots of times. Mike, you do some coaching. Do you coach people via the polarized approach? And I'll go, yeah, sometimes or for part of the plan. Mm. It's not an all, I don't give everybody a polarized plan all the time. Um, and Ian said at the start you know which was it depends on the race it depends on the event it depends on the athlete um, and, and you just cannot come in with the one size fits all approach to, to anything you, the length of time you're applying these plans for and and I would say to anyone listening you know if it, it'd be something if you self-coach or if you're coached by someone those are the things the checks and measures I would be advising them to do is to have a look at something and say, am I always preparing the same way for stuff? Am I always preparing my athletes the same way? Because maybe I should be different.
2: Yeah. Uh, I know we've talked in the past about, you know, maybe not being too um, consumed with metrics um, and, and what some of the dangers of that might be. But I do think, it you know, in terms of, uh, well, I think for the for low intensity stuff, you don't need to be anywhere near that first, on la threshold to get the benefit from it easy as long as you've got if you've got the personal control to make sure that you're training in the right at the right intensity for that 80 percent i think it becomes more challenging to differentiate between whether you're in that zone two or that zone three and if there's a a real training you know, if there's a training reason for you to be in zone three rather than zone two then i think there is some benefit for having some you know output metrics that you're Going to be guided by whether you're in that zone or not because we mentioned there Mark mentioned about you know people who are just hammering themselves all the time when you get into that training status you can be right in the middle of zone two but actually it feels like it's on three because you're right on the limit and if you just do it on perceived effort and how you're feeling you're probably going to miss a credit while you're doing your training at, at times for, for the higher intensity stuff Um so having an understanding of where that threshold is for you, um, I think, is important. Especially, I think, more probably for, and I think that's particularly an issue for cycling than running. I think if you try and just hammer yourself running all the time, it'll only last for so long, and your body will, will let you know that you're not doing that. Whereas I think for cycling, because it's uh, non-weight bearing, you've got and, and swimming as well, you've got the risk of. And potentially being able to just train at too high intensity all the time and you you do end up just gravitating towards that zone too because you're just fatigued going into a recession um, but for your hard efforts but you probably only get away with that for, for uh, a short period of time running but I think it is worthwhile knowing where your, your threshold are and if it's triathlon then obviously for, for each of the disciplines and um, when you are doing true Zone 3 work, you need to know that you are actually in there. And if, if it feels really hard and you're not in Zone 3, then you're probably either doing too much uh, or you're not doing your easy stuff at a low enough intensity to make sure you've recovered before you're doing that work and therefore you're not going to get the benefits from it.
1: I it's such, such, <laughs> such a key point that you said about between discipline testing. Um, and likewise, for people on an extended Sort of program of events, retesting because as you improve and you get better, or you have periods of time off, those zones and those those parameters will change markedly. And what you think was once yes, the accurate where you need to be, they change, they're different, and now it's completely ineffective. Yeah, and I, I think that the, the the one sort of
2: further point here, you know, just to sort of hammer on some of the points that we've made. Yeah, you know, we talked about sort of the psychology. of uh, training around race pace um, but there's also the uh, and the learning that Mark mentioned but the efficiency as well you know, you're only going to develop efficiency at those paces, those intensities if you do uh, a reasonable amount of training at those periods and also you know, taking on nutrition um, uh, when you're at race pace because you can, put, you can practice nutrition strategy in an easy run
0: but it's not going to tell you a lot about how your body's going to respond to that if you run running a marathon pace do you know just on the topic and sorry, mike was just talking about testing then as well and i think this is a really interesting point that when we look at testing so just say for example cycling for example if you're doing a cycle test i think one of the problems that you tend to get is that a lot of the testing is very always geared towards maximum so one of the key things we've talked about here whatever approach pyramid you know, um, uh, polarised. You know, you talked about the stats, Ian. What people probably don't do enough of is the easy stuff. They don't do enough stuff below aerobic threshold, enough volume. And that's what a lot of the elite runners are doing. But people, some amateurs tend to dismiss it because it's just too easy and they don't think they're going to get the benefits. And I think that's probably one thing we can agree from both papers that that you can, they should be doing more aerobic, uh, low intensity work, okay? The problem is with testing, is that it's everything uh, encourages you to go maximal so it could be maximal aerobic power, maximal sprint test, what can you push for 20 minutes, what's maximal power you can push for 20 minutes, you know an FTP test, everything is maximal, maximal, maximal and what people don't think enough of is doing economy testing and you mentioned the word economy a second ago so if we're doing a polarised approach you should, your testing should be polarised. So for example, if in winter, if we're doing a polarised approach with someone on the bike, the testing would follow the same. I wouldn't be interested in what they can push for 20 minutes because we're not doing that in training. So a polarised test, for example, might be what's the maximal amount of power you can push for 10 seconds or one minute? And then wearing a mask, so measuring kind of VO2, what's the oxygen consumption, the economy scores at the lower intensity? And where's that first breakpoint, that first lactate threshold, that first ventilatory threshold, aerobic threshold, whatever you measure, whatever you want to call it. Where's that first breakpoint? So where's the top of zone one? What's the oxygen consumption in zone one, zone two, in those bottom uh, training zones? And that's what people should be testing. But the most common tests that everybody does with power meters, they're all just what's the maximum you can push all the time? No one's measuring economy. No one's measuring the benefits of doing a lot of aerobic base training. So if you cycle 12 hours a week, all below lactate threshold one, you should be testing what the improvements are of that. So how your economy scores improving at that bottom end. And I think until people start testing those things, they can't make the connection in the brain. Oh, Wow. So my 20 minute power didn't go up but look how much less oxygen i'm using now when i'm running or riding at a lower intensity so you, the testing has to match the training and i don't see that happening enough
2: Yeah, there's definitely some uh, benefits from testing and, and as mike mentioned and you mentioned there, Matt, repeated testing as well but um to determine where those thresholds are um but also so look at what you're uh, So your economy uh, in zone one is interesting, but also your
0: economy around about race pace is obviously very important as an outcome of your training. So when you move into that second block of training where you're doing more specific work and you're starting to do that, whatever you want to call it, threshold work, running at marathon pace, running at 10k pace. then really, your testing should reflect that. So let's look at economy at the start of that block. Let's look at economy at marathon pace. and Let's look at economy at marathon pace at the end of that block, because that's what we're going to work on. But if the three months before you were doing polarised approach, if you're going to run easy for 60 mile a week, all below lactate threshold one, then your testing uh, measures should reflect, you know, where are the improvements? You know, you shouldn't be going out trying to run 5k flat out to see if you've improved your 5k time because it's not going to correlate. That's not what you're working on. That comes in the next block. So I don't see enough testing mirroring training sessions or training blocks rather. So in what we do, and we're doing the polarised approach, our testing, we are looking at oxygen economy at those lower intensities. Are they becoming more economical at that bottom end? Because that's the kind of training they're doing. What we're not doing is saying, oh, has the VO2 max improved? Well, it probably won't because we're not doing anything hard, you know, sustained. So that will perhaps come in the next block, you know. So I think unless people tie that together and see those test results and they have improved, and I think that's why people don't trust that low intensity approach.
2: Yeah, there is there's, there's that um, implicit subliminal message going to people that this is why it's important, because that's what our, our goal is, our target. Yeah. Um, if
0: they don't
2: match up, then if people will gravitate towards doing the work, that will, yeah. uh, what they perceive will benefit what they're going to be
0: tested on absolutely if you're judging your your improvement by your ftp or what you can push for 20 minutes if that's what you're judging your improvement by then you're probably going to do a lot of sessions around that intensity all around your 20 minute power because that's what you're trying to improve so subliminally you will be drawn to that kind of training so the testing you're using will influence the type of training you do subliminally definitely
2: so I think we've got some, yeah, we've got some uh, really sort of good takeaways, haven't we, and sort of conclusions that we can draw from across both papers. I think, mm. um, and one of them is definitely that, yeah, you know, a significant majority of your training should be at really easy uh, intensities, and, and they're definitely both in agreement to that. And that's probably that can probably stay consistent throughout the year, can't it? Mm. Um, that, that bit probably hasn't changed that much, but it's probably the, the balance between Zone 2 and Zone 3 that is the one that way we're tailoring things depending on where you are in the training season and, and, and what your uh, end objective is. But that, uh, we, what we also need to sort of periodize alongside that is what our objectives are and what we're testing ourselves on and testing progress on as we progress through as well and making sure that they're in alignment.
1: Mm. Mm. yeah i think you know polarized is great, but it's probably not the only approach, and it's certainly not the devil, and likewise you know don't don't when we've advocated today that threshold might not be as bad as you think we're also not giving the green light that that should be breaks off and just go nuts with that you know it's it's horses for courses and and the same horse might need a different course at different times in the season.
0: Absolutely. Anything else from you,
2: Ian? I, I need to say that I think we've probably ended up being more towards the polar. If you read in the two papers, we're probably more towards the polarised trend. Is not optimal, but there's um, there's probably common ground from both of them that, um, we're cons- that are consistent with what
0: our conclusions are as well. No, I think,
2: I think we've covered everything.
0: Anything else from you, Mike?
1: no it's nothing i think I think what we um sometimes don't push a lot on on the podcast is you know for for someone listening, please do comment on these things if you've if you've seen us share these on social media or on Twitter and you've listened and you 've got thoughts not just whether you like or dislike the episode but the stuff we talk about do you agree with it, you disagree if you've got your own opinions gives us things to continue talking about in future episodes and again if anyone's listening and they've got some really strong thoughts and they'd love to be a guest to come on then let us know let us know and and, uh we can develop these talks we can always have a part two on on any episode if it's needed
0: super pleasure as always gents um i look forward to our next podcast and hopefully it'll be sooner than the time gap before this one (laughs) speak to you soon Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at The Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport x That's MD Sport EX. Uh, You can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the endurance coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon.